grace, mercy, and peace be multiplied on each one of you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. It's a little intimidating, quite frankly, to be in this pulpit when you have such a marvelous pastor who preaches an incredible Lord Jesus Christ. So you just figured that this is his day off to preach and you can look forward to him next Sunday. <laughs> the uh, sermon today is based on the epistle. And the question before us is, what if Christ had not been risen? What if? What if? The words of 1 Corinthians 15 are familiar to us, especially at Easter time, but maybe even more especially at funerals. When we bring our loved ones into this sanctuary, perhaps for the last time, and then we take them to their resting place in this earth, awaiting the resurrection of the dead, we gather around their grave and our pastor will speak words from 1 Corinthians 15 to give us hope, to give us courage, and encourage us for the life moving on without that loved one, knowing we'll see them again and we'll never say goodbye again. It's these words that give us comfort and joy at graveside. Many years ago when Priscilla and I were missionaries in the Philippines, one of the first villages that came to Christ through the preaching of the gospel was a little village called Namugtoy. And the first group of believers, seven families in all, were baptized on a day. And in a sense, the church in Namugtoy was born. It was about two months later that, uh, that uh, Helen, one of the young women who was baptized, she and her husband Modesto and their little one Irene, became very concerned because Irene got very sick. This is way up in the mountains in the Philippines where medicines were hard to get and children died. The mortality rate among children at that time was about two or three out of five children. And Irene died. She died of probably something no more than dehydration. We were back in the village the day after Irene died. And so we arranged to do the funeral. And those Christians who came with me from another village, and I gathered with Irene, and, or with Helen and Modesto and their family at the graveside and proclaimed the resurrection. It was a month later that Irene's grandfather came to see me. He was a pagan priest. He knew the spiritual powers but he said, missionary, can you teach me to sing like you sing at the grave of a child? I said, I'll very dance. What do you mean? You sing with joy. You sing with hope. We don't know those things. Can you teach me to sing at the grave of a child? That's these words from 1 Corinthians 15. Indeed, Christ is raised the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So yes, we hold these words from 1 Corinthians with all our heart because they mean everything for us for the life after death, a life where we'll always live and live with our Lord Jesus and live with our brothers and sisters who fell asleep 
in Christ. But St. Paul would even say more about the resurrection than it's just for our future. It's for us now, and that's what he'd like us to see in this text. Because as he said in the opening lines, it's the gospel that you receive in which you stand. And you and I stand before the living God because of his resurrection, and we stand before a broken world because of the resurrection. First, before our God. Paul gets right to the point, if Christ be not raised, you are still in your sin. What's he saying? Obviously, later in that chapter, he said, the sting of death is sin. A bee stings you, you get itchy, and maybe your foot or your cheek puffs up wherever the bee bit. When sin bites you, you die. You don't just die in this life, you die forever. Sin always brings death, period. Whether it's sin, great or small, there is always death. So St. Paul is saying, if the Lord Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then sin is still ruling in this world. Sin's still alive and well, intending to kill you. Any sin left over will bring death. It was the same village or a village near that, the village of Cameling, where we brought the gospel. After two years of preaching that word of God, I got a knock on my cabin door one night, and one of the elders of the community said, missionary, come with us, I want to show you something. He took me up a hill into a, uh, basically a rice terrace that had not been flooded, so it was just a large, large field at that time. It was dark, but the perimeter of the field was just dotted with small fires, and there were probably a hundred or more people up there. In the center of the field was a heap of blankets. It was hard to see at first till my eyes became adjusted to the light. I realized there was something or maybe someone underneath those blankets. Sure enough, it was an old man named Dokai, a pagan from a village down the ways who had died some weeks or months before, and his granddaughter was having a series of dreams at night, and Dokai was coming back to her, insisting on certain sacrifices being made, or he would cause problems in their family. Now, we kind of think that's hokey or a little bit bizarre. It's real, it's very real. The power of evil and darkness there is profound. And so the family brought out a pig, and they butchered it, they stabbed it in the heart, and they brought the liver to the pagan priest who read it carefully, and he shook his head. Not sufficient. So they got back in front of Dokai under those blankets. Oh, Dokai, please receive our gifts. Please receive our gifts. They brought another pig out. They butchered it. They brought the liver to the priest. He read it. Not sufficient. Not sufficient. 23 pigs were butchered that night until the priest finally said, that's enough. That's enough. And I thought, you know, I've been preaching the gospel among these people for two years, and this is where we are. Still trying to appease God with the blood of animals. It's like the Old Testament. Pastor's been bringing us through the book of Leviticus and every day, night, and morning, the butchering of a lamb, and bulls, and goats, 
blood everywhere in the altar of the temple in Jerusalem or in the tabernacle in the wilderness, repeated year after year after year. And why? Because it was never quite good enough. Well, the next morning I got a knock on my cabin door again. One of the elders came up to my house and said, missionary, come down to Kula Khan's house, the head elder of the community. There's a number of men there gathered, and we want to visit with you. So I went down, and there were several pagan priests. There must have been 20 men in the room. And Kula Khan's brother, Onki, said to me, missionary, what did you think about what you saw last night? And I said, Onki, can I ask you a question first? He said, sure, missionary. When all of you went home last night, after butchering those 23 animals, were you sure? Were you sure it was enough? Onki looked me square in the eye, and he said, missionary, you, you know the answer to that question. I said, as soon as you butchered the second animal, you knew it wasn't enough. Why 23? Why not 50? We're always trying to offer to God our own gifts in order to appease Him. And every gift we bring is broken. We insult Him. Trying to appease a holy God with broken gifts, and, and we heap gift upon gift upon gift, truckloads of broken gifts, and hoping that the quantity will matter. And the doubt still remains in our hearts. Did I do enough? I said to Onki and the other men there, so we continue to insult our God with our broken gifts. But what if there was a gift? What if there was a gift that God would receive and be satisfied? And what if you and I can't give that gift to him, but he can give that gift to us, his one son? And God butchered one son on a cross. One son's blood was shed. Not two, not three, not 25. One son. And God said, it's enough. When Jesus was finishing his, his crucifixion, his suffering, he said out loud, it's finished. Translated, it's paid in full. Our debt was gone, sin canceled. But if one, even the smallest sin, had yet remained unpaid, one of your sins, one of my sins, if one of those yet remained unpaid, Jesus would still be dead. That's the power of sin. But as St. Paul so boldly says in our text, he's not dead. He rose from the dead. And when the Father raised him from the dead, the Father echoed out as loud a voice as he could, it is paid in full. You can't add a thing to what your Lord Jesus has done for you. So we stand boldly before our Father because of a resurrected Christ, and not only that, we enter into the prayer room of Almighty God where in the Old Testament only the high priest could go in there and that once a year. We walk right into the throne room before the presence of the living God and we speak to him with our hearts, our concerns about our own selves or our neighbors. 
We share our hearts and our minds, our thoughts, our concerns, our joys before the living God, and you don't question whether or not he hears, because Christ is alive. And because he's alive, you and I have full access to the Father's heart, to the Father's ears. He may not answer our prayers exactly the way we want, but you know he's heard them with all his heart because Christ is alive for your sake and for mine. So indeed, we stand boldly. We stand boldly before our Father in heaven because of the resurrection, but likewise, we stand boldly before this present age. There was a group in Corinth what caused the problem that Paul is addressing in this text. We don't know how many people there were. The Corinthian church was probably smaller than our church here in Arcadia. But there was a small segment of, of members of that congregation who, while believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, did not believe in the resurrection from the dead. They might have believed Jesus rose, but the point is, we don't. They must have picked that up somewhere along the way, most likely from Greek philosophy here and there. And there's a lot of argument by biblical scholars of which philosophy they picked up and were kind of re-imagining re, uh, it in the congregation in Corinth. Lots of different possibilities. Maybe, maybe it was the Gnostics or, or Platonists that thought the body is bad. The spirit is good, the body's bad, so there can't be a physical resurrection. Our spirits might rise, but our bodies stay in the ground. Paul says, no, we rise from the dead because God loves this planet. He loves us. He loves all that he made physically. It belongs to him, and he redeemed it by his son, and he called it good once again as he raised his son from the dead. It also might have been the philosophy of, of a guy named Epicurus. We know him as Epicureans, right? Who like good food and art and things like that. Epicurus believed that our whole aim in life was to seek pleasure. And it wasn't hedonistic pleasure. Really what he was meaning by pleasure was the absence of pain. He said you gotta work your heart out to avoid pain at all costs to kind of get your head in a place where it's eternally peaceful and no pain. And he taught that when you're dead, you're dead. Because who would want to live forever in pain? So the best thing you got going is to die. And it's all over. No more pain. Can you imagine avoiding the pain of this life? You and I are baptized children of God. We've been brought by baptism into the very resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And in being brought into him, we've been brought into the purpose he came uh, in the first place. As pastor said in his little children's sermon, he came to invite us to belong to him. Don't let the little ones stay away. They belong to me. And he says it to every one of us. He came for one purpose only, to bring us back to the Father. But he came into a world filled with pain intentionally. He wasn't here to avoid pain. He was here to bear pain, even pain on a cross, that we might belong to him. And those of us who are called by his name, who are baptized into the resurrected life, who have put on the Lord Jesus, as St. Paul says, 
have been invited by our Lord to join him in bearing the pain of this world, not escaping it, bearing it, so that others might know the love of Jesus, that others might know God was raised from the dead and they have new life in him, life that doesn't end, but life that even here and now belongs to him. There was something else about Epicurus, Epicurus that was important to his philosophy. He said, we gotta avoid pain and we gotta do everything in our own power to do that because the gods don't care. They live forever on Olympus or wherever they do and they're impervious to the brokenness and suffering in this present age. They don't care. Basically, you and I are on our own to bear whatever difficulties and challenges we have to face. St. Paul, in this wonderful chapter, challenges that head on. He says early on, he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Then to James, then the apostles. And lastly of all, he appeared to me. Now granted, it may be a defense in this text of these are eyewitnesses of the resurrection, so you can talk to them. They did see a bodily Jesus, so you don't have to believe he didn't rise from the dead. I'm sure that's a big part of his argument. But dig a little bit deeper. Last time I preached in this pulpit or in this congregation was the first Sunday after Easter. What a marvelous day to preach the gospel. And well, I preach a few things that's bear repeating in this case. Easter one, that is Easter day. What's the action of the story? You find the women early in the morning going to the tomb, right? They're going to bring spices and, and perform one last holy and love-filled act to their savior by anointing his body. Then Peter and John hear through Mary that Jesus, the, the, the grave's empty. And Peter and John race to the tomb to find out if it's true. So the opening verses of the Easter story are the disciples running to the tomb of their Lord Jesus, to whom they think is dead. That's Easter A. Easter B flips the scene completely over. Because it now is Jesus Christ running to each of his disciples. Every story from then on, it's the Lord Jesus going and finding someone. Starts with Mary in the garden, right? She's gone back to the garden to weep. She's in a cemetery because that's all she knows now is death. Jesus raised her from the dead when he spoke her name the first time and set her free from demons and loved her as no one had ever loved her. And she was set free, and now he's dead, and she died with him. And she grieves her heart out there at the tomb. Jesus goes to the cemetery to find her. That's a tremendous picture. Mary, he said, and her life has suddenly changed. He's alive. And if he's alive, I'm alive. If he's alive, everything he did for me is real. 
Later that night, two disciples, Mr. and Mrs. Cleopas, are walking back to Emmaus. They're confused. They can't figure anything out. They don't understand the scriptures. It's just bewildering to them. And Jesus goes and finds them on the road. And he opens the Holy Scriptures to them so they can see him and understand that the scriptures had promised, as St. Paul says in this text, according to the scriptures he had to suffer, and according to the scriptures he had to rise from the dead. Later that evening, the disciples, he appears to them, but Paul doesn't say they're locked behind closed doors because they're scared out of their wits. They're afraid and they're immobilized by their fear. And Jesus goes into that room and appears to them. Shalom. You can go on to the rest of the gospel lessons about Easter and its aftermath. In every single story, it's the Lord Jesus personally going and finding a disciple whose heart is broken. You can look at James, um, or Thomas, I'm sorry, Thomas who can't believe. All the other disciples believe he can't. I want to, I can't. So the Lord appears to him. Thomas, touch my hands. Thomas, touch my side. Stop doubting. I'm here, man. Believe me. And Thomas confesses, my Lord and my God. And finally, as if it's the last one, he appears to Simon on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, who's immobilized by his guilt. I'm the one that denied the Lord Jesus. The other disciples didn't do that. I did. How is it possible I can go on being his? And so Jesus had to go find him. And he did. They took a walk together on the shore. As Jesus did the deepest heart surgery on Peter's heart you could imagine and gave Peter back the commission to feed his lambs, his sheep, to proclaim his glorious resurrected name to the world. See, the point is, is the resurrected Jesus finds every one of us personally. He looks for where we are and where we're stuck or where we're immobilized or where we can't go forward anymore in serving him or one another. And he's there to unstick not just by his presence, by his resurrected presence. If death could not stop me, and I am with you, what can stop us? You belong to me, and I am never, ever leaving you. Indeed, that gives us boldness to live in a world that is so broken our own lives that are broken in so many ways. But we don't live here alone. There's no distant God who's indifferent. There's a God who became flesh and blood, who died and rose again and never leaves us. Because he's risen from the dead. Amen. Now the peace of God that surpasses all human understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. We stand and confess our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed.